0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading this show. All right, so I'm happy to announce finally the release of my new book, False Christ, which is available in paperback, Kindle, as well as a lot of other ebook forms all over the internet. And I'm happy to say that it premiered at number one in the prophecy category of uh, Amazon. It even beat old John Hagee in his uh, Blood Moon book for a while. It's since gone down quite a bit, but at least it uh, debuted at number one. So that's pretty cool. So thank you all for making that happen. And in addition to it being available in paperback and Kindle, it's also available in an audiobook form. So if you're interested in that, you can go to audible.com. And you can sign up for a free trial membership if you want to get it for free. You can totally cancel the membership, pay nothing and keep the audiobook. You can do that at uh, any link on my website to Audible, but also you could just go to the direct link, which is audibletrial.com slash Chris and sign up for the membership, get the uh, false Christ book and then cancel the membership free audiobook. I usually listen to my Audible books on uh, uh, the free Audible app for smartphones. And, man, I listen to a lot of Audible books. So uh, I didn't cancel the trial, but uh, but you can certainly do that if you want the free audiobook at audible.com. All right, so got a lot to talk about today. First, I want to apologize for the delay in the podcast. I still plan on doing a lot of podcasts, but uh, just a lot of things have happened. Uh, some of the interviews fell through that I had intended to put out in the last few weeks. And then it's also just been crazy busy with work. It's kind of the busy season uh, right now, and I've just been working every day, so it's been kind of a bummer in that regard. In addition, trying to do all the promotional stuff for False Christ, my goal is to make a lot of videos um, that are essentially video books for the book and put put them out on YouTube. I just put one out two days ago called uh, the The Seven-Year Covenant is Not a Peace Treaty. Which is available on my YouTube channel. And I've got a few more in the can that I plan on releasing for a while. So I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time doing some video editing in the next uh, week or two and try to get those out. And then once I'm done with that promotional, uh, uh, stuff, I plan on getting back full force to the podcast and all the other projects that I need to get to. So anyway, so today I'm going to answer two basic questions. One is going to be about the Israel Palestinian conflict and how that Relates to Bible prophecy, and then I'm also going to talk about the the uh something that I think that we all have struggled with to one degree or another is the condemnation that comes after uh, a falling in some sin or another. In this case, we're going to talk specifically about pornography and the feeling like, well, you can't go back to God because you know you feel uh, uh, like a hypocrite or that God is mad at you and all these different things. So we go into a lot of detail in answer to. A particular person's question. So I hope these will be beneficial to you and uh, we'll just get right into it. Let's go with question number one. Alright, let's talk a little about the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict as of July 2014 and how it may relate to Bible prophecy. Now, of course, I have the theory that the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah. And that seems a little contradictory on the surface. How can I, on one hand, say that the world will ultimately embrace a man who is claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, Um and on the other hand, we see the world th- that absolutely hates Israel and is encouraged to hate Israel by the mainstream media and uh generally the powers that be. It seems like, if what is Satan's motive here? Because... He seems to be encouraging this illogical hatred of Israel. uh And on the one hand, he is ultimately going to claim to be the Messiah of Israel and want people to embrace that idea. So he's expecting people to go from this uh severe hatred, which he has created, to uh an embracing of Israel. It just doesn't seem to match up. And I think that it does match up. And I want to go through a scenario that uh, may make this make a little sense, but first let me clear up a little bit of what's going on. For those of you who may not know, um, Israel is basically retaliating against consistent terrorist attacks that have gone on and continue to go on, mostly rocket fire and these kinds of things. They refrain from trying to uh, do military strikes and, and destroy terrorist infrastructure for the most part. Um because of international criticism, because the world goes absolutely bananas whenever they uh try to defend themselves about this and the the it it 's so illogical even from as an American in our foreign policy, the way we deal with terrorism i mean we just would never put up with consistent rocket fire into major cities without severe retaliation. I mean, think of uh, a pressure cooker bombing that went on at the Boston Marathon, something that is, you know, relatively uh, light in comparison to consistent rocket fire. Yet we want to lynch that guy and just think about our, our military strikes, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, which is ostensibly because of nine eleven and and all the rest of it, which they, you know, didn't have much to do with. Uh, especially not the, you know, talk about civilian casualties and stuff like that. We could certainly go on about what, what America has done, you know, unintentionally, I'm sure, but the point is that it was unintentional with Israel as well. Anyway, uh, the whole, the whole idea from just a secular foreign policy perspective is nonsense to have the media so angry with Israel. And I think that Christians and Jews are like flabbergasted by the idea, like, they're like, this just doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of the point, I think, in, in, as I'll go into later. But, but I think that what happens is y- we as Christians see this illogical hatred of Israel. And we assume, rightly so, that the media campaigns and the powers that be are encouraging this hatred of Israel. And so we can by proxy say that Satan, who either uh, the people who run these organizations, media organizations, maybe unknowingly or knowingly, uh, are, are influenced by Satan, we would think. And so, what could Satan's motive be here? If he is encouraging hatred of Israel, yet he ultimately wants the world to embrace Israel in some sense, in the sense that he is going to claim to be the Jewish Messiah. How could that possibly make sense? So, um, A few things. First of all, I think we need to take a step back, and this isn't going to be my uh, main point, but it's always helpful to remember that we have a tendency to see every single thing that's going on in the world right now as directly applicable to Bible prophecy. Now, this could have something to do with Bible prophecy down the line, but we need to remember that as a church, we have consistently, since day one, seen uh, uh, the, the, the world around us through the lens of we are in the end times right now. I mean, just read the church fathers who were so sure that they were living in the end times that they forced the political and military things that were happening in the day into Bible prophecy, whether it was the Goths sacking Rome or uh, you know, on down the line to more modern stuff like Napoleon and the World Wars or even the last few decades, the Russia and the Cold War. We, we just have done this so many times and we've been wrong so many times. It should uh, make us a little bit more humble and uh, make the criteria for whatever current event that we are seeing um be a little bit more stringent. Does this current event really have to do with Bible prophecy? I mean, is it doing something that the Bible said, or is it just because Israel is involved that we assume it's part of Bible prophecy because, as we all know, we're in the end times? So, and again, I think this could develop into something that is applicable to the Bible, but just because Israel is involved doesn't mean that this is something that is directly applicable to the end times. So that's the first point, is just soberness about this, and that we should um, make sure our criteria for applying this to Bible prophecy is based on the Bible, not um emotion, basically. Okay, the second point I want to make is that, as I said in the book False Christ, that the Antichrist is basically going to try to fake the return of the Messiah, or as the Jews might see it, um, the first coming of the Messiah. In, in any case, they both see the Messianic mission as primarily involving a destruction of the enemies of Israel in an epic way. There needs to be some sort of epic gathering of Isra- Israel's enemies in order for the Antichrist to supernaturally destroy him with his military prowess, which is empowered by Satan, so he's not got a problem with destruction of enemies. It's going to be his forte. Um, so he's got to do that in order to look as if he is fulfilling the primary messianic mission of destroying the enemies of Israel. Therefore, he, because he's trying to fake this, needs to construct a massive uh, hatred of Israel in order to gather nations against it. That's very, very important. Um, now in the book, I made the case that on the one hand, this is going to be extremely easy for him because as Daniel tells us, he's going to build a temple and start the daily sacrifices on the Temple Mount, which if you know anything about the politics of the Temple Mount, that will cause a Arab unification and a war against Israel, which he will defeat. So that's, that's part of it. He doesn't require um a, a, a poking and prodding of the media to get the world generally to hate Israel for that that's going to be simple it's just build the temple start the sacrifices cause war but the antichrist seems to be doing something before that covenant as well he comes from a 10 king confederacy of nations or possibly a nation with 10 kings i'm not totally sure about that but in any case it seems to be outside of israel and he's subduing three of those kings and doing some minor political or military things before he gets to the beginning of the seven years. So I suggest that during that time, as I said in the book, there's probably going to be a general um conflict in Israel where uh Israel seems very, very threatened. And I say this because since he's coming from outside of Israel in some kind of ten-nation or ten-king thing, that suggests that the world needs to get involved with this Israel conflict. And that's kind of how he, you know, comes to prominence in Israel as a defender of Israel is because the world has now required military intervention in, in the escalated Israel uh, conflict. And so all that to suggest that there needs to be an initial hatred of Israel and a, th- a, a, a threat of to Israel that requires global attention uh, before the covenant even starts. So that's one point, that the Antichrist ultimately benefits from hatred of Israel because he requires danger of Israel in order to, to save Israel from the danger. It's just psychology 101. And I would also suggest that the um illogical nature of the hatred of Israel uh held by Jews and Christians Their their recognition that it's it's crazy the whole world has gone bananas and and they hate Israel and it's not true because Israel really isn't uh doing do anything that we wouldn't do etcetera etcetera that kind of mentality is even more beneficial for him because he seems even more righteous in when he defeats the the mad dogs of the world whether they be you know islamic uh people that are are absolutely hate israel that have been taught that for their whole lives or the world intervention that comes in against israel that's non-islamic because we'll see that even more as like oh my goodness the whole world is against israel this is definitely the end times okay so he even looks more glorious when he uh, defends them early on. So the psychology of the hatred of Israel benefits in two ways. Another point that I think is even more important is that we have, as Christians, mostly seen the Antichrist and his deception as something that must convince the entire world um, that he is the guy, a good guy. And so we come up with theories that basically have the whole world dropping all their beliefs and religions and so on and come to him, you know, in just wide-eyed wonder and love and and really just embrace him with their own free will. That's what we're expecting to happen. When in actuality, I don't think that Satan and the Antichrist will care that much about what the world thinks of him. That is the unbelieving world. In terms of just theological um stuff, he doesn't he doesn't really care much about the world that is unsaved and sadly is already going to go to hell. I mean, his mission for them is accomplished. Jesus warns us of a great apostasy. In fact, I would say that Jesus is more concerned about the deception towards Christians than he is about anything else. The great apostasy means at the, in the end times, the, a whole bunch of people that are calling themselves Christians, whether they re- were genuine Christians or not is up for debate, but the, the idea of apostasy means that a bunch of people calling themselves Christians will leave Christianity, true Christianity, for whatever the Antichrist is, is selling, his false version of, uh, of the Bible will be embraced either because they're afraid for their lives or because they really believe it or both. We don't really know. But the point is that that seems to be the concern of Jesus. Now he says that, that this deception is so great that it could deceive the very elect if it were possible. So it's not possible to deceive the actual elect, but I would say that there are among, among us that call ourselves Christians, um, and during the time of the Antichrist, some of them aren't the elect because of the idea of the great apostasy. A lot of people do leave Christianity that we would say, well, they're, they're the elect because they're calling themselves Christians, but apparently some of them aren't. And that seems to be the concern of uh, of, of Jesus. So, so that brings up the idea that we always, you know, when we consider the deceptions of the antichrist, we're like, well, that's not going to get us, you know, let's take the alien idea that I used to believe. Um, you know, the, we believed that the antichrist was going to have something to do with a, an alien revealing and the whole world would say, Oh my goodness, all the religions are are untrue. And this guy really has the the power, but we would say in our hearts, you know, there's no way that's gonna get me because I know that aliens really don't exist and they're not even aliens, they're demons and, you know, all this other stuff that we would, uh, say. So we, we believe that we're completely insulated from any, any deception of the Antichrist. Well, he's, he's trying to convince the world, you know, not Christians. So all of our theories have that kind of presupposition and which is a really dangerous thing because if the Antichrist is smarter than we think that he is and if his motives are to to come at christians and jews primarily with this deception then we're not as prepared as we thought we were now as a general coup d'etat it's it's what he would want to do um he would be more uh, victorious in his own eyes to deceive christians and jews to take people away from uh, jesus and to bring them to his side that would be a much greater accomplishment And again, that's, I think, the testimony of what he's trying to do in Scripture. So that's an important thing to figure out, that he is is attempting to deceive Christians and Jews primarily and doesn't concern himself as much with the world. I think that the world does come under his rule, but that's more of a uh, very worldly way in which that happens. Okay, so what I mean by that is, if you look at history, all throughout history from, you know, the beginning of time onward, uh, the his- history is the story of a guy who gets really powerful militarily and goes and attacks his neighboring country in order to expand his empire. And that empire attacks more countries, gains more territory, incorporates those countries into the new empire. Eventually, that empire wanes, and another guy uh, starts an empire, and he takes over that other empire and incorporates that land into his empire, and it just goes back and forth. It's a story of a guy using his military to go and take more territory, and people join that empire because, ultimately, they can't defeat him militarily, and so they have no choice but to just become, now we're part of this empire because... We can't do anything about it. And usually they're just like, hey, you know, whatever, uh, first, this boss, same as the old boss, or whatever. And, um, you know, sometimes it was even a better empire. You know, the Persians, people liked it pretty good, even though they were totally, anyway, the point is, Alexander the Great, you know, even Hitler was ultimately trying to do that, Napoleon. And I think that we feel that that kind of idea just doesn't happen again. You know, won't ever happen again, because, we have this idea that the, the the boundaries of countries are fixed now. There is no more um, man getting stronger than another man in military and just taking what he wants and calling that country a new country name because that just doesn't happen anymore. We're done. We're past Hitler and we're past Napoleon and we're past uh, Alexander the Great, etc. Well, I would suggest that that's not true. And if you believe the Bible, you know it's not true. The Antichrist... Um, in Daniel eleven forty through forty five, regardless of h- which way you take it, that's exactly what he does. He not only defeats, um you know, the the king of the north and king of the south, but he then sub- they attack him first. As I always mention, it's really important to remember that they're they don't like him. A lot of people don't like the antichrist, so they come against him with war, but they are completely defeated. And then it goes on to say that he just totally takes their stuff. I mean, he just gets everything and it also says that they are, that it shows this picture of them sort of being absolutely subservient to them. I mean, just bowing down essentially and saying, look, you have beaten us. Here's our stuff. Wow. You can really fight some wars, man. <clears throat> so if you take in that into consideration and you understand that, that the antichrist is empowered to fight wars in the end times by a supernatural, what appears to, what he, Daniel calls the god of fortresses, what Revelation suggests is the dragon's power. Uh, so Satan is ultimately giving the Antichrist a supernatural ability to defeat people in war, whether that's technological or just plain supernatural, I don't know. But it's new, it's big, and it cannot be defeated. And that alone, if you just apply that to the rest of world history, makes him be able to conquer whatever he wants, take whatever he wants, do his own will, as the Bible says. So so you need to take that into consideration. A very old-time kind of thing is happening in the end times. He doesn't require everybody to love him. In fact, a lot of people clearly don't love him because they're attacking him. But it doesn't matter because he um, beats them. And you take into consideration things like the Mark of the Beast system, is showing you that he he's telling people you take this mark or you can't buy and sell or I'm going to kill you by beheading you <laughs> so there's a massive incentive program to join up with his empire now you you wouldn't have a massive incentive program that was so thorough not only can you not buy or sell making you an outlaw but if we catch you we're going to behead you That's not the kind of thing that you do when the whole world loves you and is willingly coming to you because they believe your your new doctrine or whatever. So in trying to sum all this up, if you take two of those points that I mentioned, number one, that the Antichrist needs the world to go to war against Israel in order to uh, look like he is the Savior of Israel, a primary thing that he needs to do then is to cause the world to go to war against Israel which may explain the consistent poking and prodding of the world through the media to hate Israel and to be okay with that when the time comes so the and the second point is that he is not as concerned as we think that he is about deceiving the world into loving him with their own free will uh the bible tells us he doesn't really care in that he defeats the people that attack him and get them to subdue him so su- uh be subjected to him just because he is better at the military stuff than they are and then you also uh, see the mark of the beast system and the beheading of people that basically gets everybody else out of just plain fear or their hands are tied i mean the, the ultimatum is too great For them to do anything else about it. He's got the unsaved world, um, in the bag, and he doesn't need anybody to like it, although I think a lot of them will. And maybe something, by the way, could happen. They could find the Ark of the Covenant, or the world might be enthralled in that way and begin to, um, uh, you know, turn the tide of hatred of Israel to embracing of Israel, but, you know, and that might have something to do with it. But, Anyway, those two points that he needs people to go to war against Israel and that he doesn't really care what the unsaved world thinks about him. And we're back to the same idea of, of this anti-Semitism in the world, this illogical anti-Semitism. And I would suggest that that could be and probably is a major reverse psychology thing that is affecting primarily in the way that he wants it, people to be affected by it, Jews and Christians. Because it's, it's, Solidifying in the Jews and Christians mind that the whole world is illogically against Israel. The whole world is like mad and it, it this age old psychological thing of it enforces your, um, your view that you, your cause is righteous and just. And indeed it is, of course. But that psychology that we hold that the whole world is against us and this is crazy and it can't be solved by any um, you know, regular way. This has to be solved. You know, the whole world is going to try to attack Israel, but God has got to defend it because God is going to defend it and all this stuff. They're going to use that psychology. He's going to use that psychology to make it even more uh like he is the return of Christ or the Messiah or whatever he claims to be and however that works. Now we would say, well, we're not going to fall for that, but you might fall for it, especially as I've been saying, if you're convinced that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim and this is all going to happen because the Muslims are going to attack Israel and they're going to try to wipe it out because of their, uh, their religious beliefs or whatever, but it's not going to work because God is going to defend them. If that's your view, then you're a sitting duck for the, the view that I just uh, laid out because all you're waiting for the return of Christ to stop a Muslim invasion. And to, to defend Israel, you're, if a guy does exactly that and claims to be the return of Christ and starts doing all the things that, uh, most literal evangelical Christians expect Jesus to do when he returns, and that is to, uh, to get Israel on board with the, uh, with, uh, you know, at least ostensibly claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, setting up the temple, um uh, making Jerusalem the capital city of the world, all the stuff that's supposed to happen in the millennium that Christians believe will happen in the millennium, we're going to be sitting ducks for that, and we're not prepared for that kind of deception. So, in other words, I think that we need a, a shift from preparing um our thinking for uh, the Antichrist deception to be primarily against the world and to convince a bunch of unsaved people to be even more unsaved by worshiping the Antichrist as opposed to a deception that is targeting those that are claiming to be Christians with a very Christian-seeming uh seeming scenario that uh, I believe he has uh, been working on for a long time. We can't underestimate the intelligence of Satan, and that is one of his primary weapons against us is deception, and he is focused on us, I think, so so in conclusion the anti-semitism being promoted by the media and causing the whole world to go crazy and hatred against Israel uh, in this particular conflict in the same way that it did in the conflict before this and the one before that and the one before that etc is something that ultimately benefits the antichrist in that he needs the world to ultimately go to war with Israel in order to defend Israel and look like the savior of Israel in addition the whole idea is something that solidifies in a reverse psychology kind of way this uh justness of our cause the world is against us we really need a uh, savior to come and help uh solve this problem it's just a win-win for satan and um i guess that's it on this point Okay, I received an email with a subject line dealing with the results of porn, and it goes like this. Chris, I know you've spoken about porn in the believer's life before. I'm a Christian who struggled with porn throughout my Christian walk. I'm much like a binge drinker. I can do good for a while, then compromise. Let a thought linger too long, a TV ad or something on the internet catches my eye, and I end up giving in to porn. Then I feel shame, unworthiness. I much of the time will keep failing for a couple of days into porn until I finally get to a point and confess to God. Much of the time I go uh, into depression and shy away from God and godly things, such as Bible studies, church, praying, because I feel like a hypocrite and not worthy. I feel like that much of the time. I was like that when you recently did a little section on your podcast about porn. It helped me turn the tide. Sometimes these episodes cause me to feel as if I'm in rebellion with God, and I don't want to be, but I can't help feel at odds with God because of my attitude, my giving into porn, my taking so long to confess. However, since your last podcast mentioning porn, I've been trying to pray, read my Bible, and do those first things when I was saved. I questioned my salvation. I've been a part of addiction groups. They've helped me, but I always find problems. Anyhow, I'm trying to pray often and read my Bible and be more mindful of God, but I feel as if I've messed everything up. I've ruined my walk. It's a feeling that's always there. I feel rejected. I remind myself that God forgives, and I know about God and what i and. Remind myself of what I know about God, but I always seem to find some small something to get caught up on. That just brings me back down. I, I can't say I feel the joy of the Lord because I know of my sins and how easily I've given in to them. I used to smoke when I first became a Christian. Then one day it was as it was as if God gave me a choice. I could quit. My mind was flooded with everything I liked about smoking, but I forced myself to remember also the bad. I ruined all my cigarettes right then and there and threw them into the trash, and I've not felt the control of cigarettes since. Why did, why didn't God take porn away? Um, he goes on to say he really sees porn as a real sin and a problem, yet I struggle with that and have for as longer than I care to say. I guess I'm running to ask, how do I deal with this unworthiness and rejected feeling? How do I get back to feeling that uh, joy of the Lord as I felt in the beginning? How do I fix my walk with God? How do I know that God isn't rejecting me? Well, in, a large part this is what uh, the project that i'm uh, working on right now is all about how to get back that joy of the lord and so some of that will come through in this response i think that we all can relate to this email in one form or another whether it's porn or something else we um are we feel like we can't go back to god Because we, he's mad at us or something similar to that. And it's, as he says, you know, you feel like a hypocrite or at odds with God. And one of the things that helped me in with this particular issue, that is when I decide to uh, repent of it, um, and go back to God, not feeling condemned, not feeling unaccepted is by a fuller understanding of the gospel, being absolutely sure of that fact and I can actually pinpoint a moment almost in this exact same scenario that I was going through uh with porn, you know, Christian trying to deal with porn and fighting it uh daily and then and then you know feeling like uh couldn't go back to God because I had really failed him and all this condemnation and stuff that I felt uh was resolved at least theologically for me uh, when I first went through the um the verse by verse commentary with David Guzik. It was just a helpful thing to really Get me to understand uh, through his study of the book of Galatians that you know what the true nature of the gospel is, and that you are saved, uh, you can't sin your way out of the covenant, and there's so many different ways to explain why that's true the uh, one that I often use is ephesians one thirteen and fourteen when you heard the gospel of your salvation. Uh, you, and believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. It, the the re- receiving of the Holy Spirit at the moment of rece- uh, believing the gospel is a guarantee of the purchased possession. It's a down payment, uh, assuring you that you're purchased. Uh, the very fact that you have the Holy Spirit as a Christian is Proof that you, that the exchange has been accepted by God, that you are no longer viewed with your ups and downs of your failings and not failings. You are in the family of God. He is seeing you with Christ's righteousness. And you know that because you would not have received the Holy Spirit unless you could, you were viewed with Christ's perfect righteousness so that God could now indwell you. If a Christian, when he sinned, lost the Holy Spirit and ceased to become a Christian because they sinned, then nothing about the gospel makes sense. Then you got to get the Holy Spirit back. Now you lose it. Now you get it back. Now you get it back. Now you're losing. All this stuff. Paul tells us that when a Christian sins, he grieves the Holy Spirit. And we certainly can do that with our sin. But because we're in the family of God, it's helpful to think of it like a child uh, who is doing something that the parent doesn't want them to do as a child the parent begins to discipline the child he, he with the ultimate goal of fixing the problem the parent loves the child he's certainly not going to reject him as his child uh but they t- that parent takes steps to hopefully correct the situation because they love their child and they're uh planning on that child um growing up to maturity and being a a good uh, adult and that's the same kind of thing with us sinning when you were saved God knew all about the, the struggles that were going to be a part of of your life, and He is working with you to, to end that struggle. And we can resist that and everything else, but He's still working on us. In fact, that's probably why you wrote, because you do have an internal, Holy Spirit-driven uh, uh, desire to be holy and to be free from this. The Bible tells us that our soul longs for holiness, there is a part of our, us in our saved life that is, is thirsty for God, that, that, that is, that wants holiness. Our soul does. It cries out for it. And that's, uh, in us as Christians. And there is another part of our body, as Paul describes, that's warring against it, our flesh, and making us, uh, that which we don't want to do, that we do, and, and so on and so forth. So, The Bible tells us to press on towards holiness and to fight that battle and to run that race, um, even though we can't run it perfectly. But there is this, this gift of striving towards holiness that's very practical. And, you know, for me, one of the difficult things is, you know, what's in it for me? What, what is in it for me to run this race and to fight Uh, all the, the temptations and stuff that are a part of this world. And that can, you know, usually it's said, you know, you do it for the love of Christ or, or for God or, um, you know, you do it because the Bible says to strive for it. And those are all really good reasons. Uh, but what do you do when maybe the love of Christ in your life isn't sufficient enough to, to, to fight that battle? I know that doesn't sound right, but I think that the love of Christ in our lives develop Uh, in part as we grow closer to him and that fire burns hotter and we want to uh, do things more just solely out of the the love and devotion we have for him. But the Bible gives us some pretty solid practical reasons that answer that question, well, what's in it for me? And holiness is a gift from God. He has given us the ability through the Holy Spirit to defeat those things which ensnare us. And by defeating those things which ensnare us, number one, we're no longer ensnared. We have freedom uh from what we know we don't want to do. If our soul is crying out for holiness, and when we do give in to those things, it causes all the things that he's describing in this email, the depression and condemnation and and all these things that are extremely negative. If we could be free from that, it would be uh really great. Um, but in addition to that, the Bible says, you know, peace and joy and... Uh, a lot of, and fruitfulness and practical things that we now have available to us because the bonds of sin have been broken in our life and we now have the ability to defeat them. Does that mean that we immediately defeat them? Well, any Christian will tell you, no, it's a work in progress. But that work in progress, uh, is, is hopefully growing. Now we can, uh, for a time go into a season of, of it not growing, but it would, it, it always plagues us in our heart because of that Holy Spirit that's driving us uh, to want to fight this battle. So the, the practical reasons for striving for it are not only joy and peace and the things that you want in your life and that your soul wants for your life, uh, is a good reason to do it. There's other things like power and prayer. Peter tells us things like bitterness towards our wife can hinder our prayers. So there's different kinds of sins, uh, and stuff that can hinder our prayers. And that's an important thing to to want too, a, a powerful prayer life. I don't think that you can get the kind of victory that the Bible promises though without um a true repentance and changing your mind about that sin. There's a lot of sins that uh, we continue to do that we haven't yet got to a place where we have put it on the table in our hearts. We may even try to battle it with our willpower and things like that which will ultimately be unsuccessful, in part because Satan still has a foothold in that area because, uh, what Jesus said, you know, Satan has nothing in me. He has no uh nothing in me, I guess is one one translation puts it. It says in another place that if you let the sun go down on your anger, for instance, it gives the devil a foothold. I think that we give the devil a foothold when we have unrepented sin, sin that we're not really willing to give up but when we are willing to give that up and when we repent of it, it, it and we strive towards holiness in that area, God gives us the power to overcome that. But it's doubtful that He's going to give you that kind of uh, power if you don't want to give it up. Now I should go on to say that with pornography it's a little bit uh, a more complicated issue. So for example, uh this email was talking about sometimes he goes a long time before he uh, confesses the sin and, and essentially repents of it. And I think during that time, it's kind of like any other sin that we are unwilling to to, to give up. We are at that time when, when we are actively running away from God because we don't want to give up this particular sin. That is a rebellion against God, um, but it's not it's not unto salvation. It's not something that God is, is not in control of, like a son is, is in rebellion for a time, like the, um, you know, like the, uh, uh, uh I can't even think of it right, prodigal son. <laughs> Why can't think of that? But the point is, is that when you do repent of it, it, it's a genuine repentance, most likely. I mean, you know, in, same thing with me. If I fall in the, in terms of pornography or any other thing, uh, but particularly with pornography, you know, immediately, I, I feel terrible about it and I repent in the sense of, look, that's never going to happen again. A, a totally genuine repentance of like, I want to live my life and never, ever, ever look at pornography again. I want to, to be done with it. And this is what I want to do, God. You know, it's a genuine repentance where I'm uh, wholeheartedly, uh, wanting that to be the last time I ever fall. And, the problem with that is that because of pornography's nature, it, it's, it's acting on more than just, um, s- temptation of, of the spirit. It, there's all kinds of physiological things that are going on there. Uh, you know, uh, the sexual impulse is a natural thing. And, you know, when you're, when you're shown something on the internet or whatever else, then you, uh, then dopamine starts firing and the rest of it and you, uh, are, are dealing with something that's more than just a spiritual thing, and then it becomes a spiritual thing about whether you're going to give into it or not, and by that time it's kind of more difficult because you've got all the physical stuff that's going on as well. So it's a little more complicated, I think, than some of the other issues, though I would say it's it's one of these things that is definitely a sin. You know, you can... You know, the, some of the things that we do as Christians that we need to repent of, you know, we can find no real good scriptural reason not to do it. We know in our hearts we shouldn't do it. Um, and, but we could say, well, it's good for some people some of the time, and it's not explicitly forbidden in the Bible and all these other things that we have. Those kinds of things are one thing. But with pornography, we could be pretty sure, yeah, that's definitely a sin. I definitely shouldn't be doing that. Yet it's one of these things that uh, a genuine Christian can continually fall into. It's just very, a difficult situation. But I do think with pornography, in my case at least, it has been a battle that uh is continually uh getting better. It's uh a battle that I've talked about in that video that must be fought outside of the internet or whatever. It's a battle that begins at the supermarket or walking down the street or wherever or out in public where you don't give in to the temptation of looking where you shouldn't be looking or, or all the different things that uh, can come about when you're out on the town or watching TV or whatever. Um, so, so that battle, for instance, is just, if I look back at like, uh, that now, it's still, it's still something I think about. It's still something that I, I have to actively, um, resist, but it's way, way easier than it ever was. And it's making the resistance of temptation in terms of pornography uh, way, way easier than it ever was. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I won't fall into temp- temptation at some point and get right back to the point where like, oh man, now I've got to essentially start over. But the point is, is that you start over and you go even further, uh, and further than you did before. Now, it's difficult too. There's this moment when you give in that you have essentially given Satan a foothold that foothold then makes it easier to continue in that sin. Um, so the that time period after giving in is a very dangerous time period where it can continue for a while until you you repent of it. So it's important to try to do it. And if one of the reasons you don't want to try to do it is because you feel that God will not accept it, realize that that's not true. I mean, he's waiting for this issue to get better. And the way that it gets better is by you reacting to that condemnation in terms of running back to him and starting right back where you started. And you'll find that that is a glorious time of, of, of getting back to God without fear of condemnation. You've just done the best thing you could possibly do. You know, can you imagine if your child did some terrible thing? And instead of coming to you with some kind of false humility, uh, you know, lying and really didn't actually care that he did that, you know, afraid of punishment or whatever, but instead the, the child really comes to you with a genuine repentance and that you could tell that child is very, very sorry. I mean, that's, that's kind of a point for a parent to almost tear up, you know, it's, it's such a, a wonderful thing to see true repentance in a child that, uh, what parent could possibly turn away that child? So, the the act of returning is the most blessed thing that you could do, making God uh, you know, rejoice, not, oh well, I'll take you back, but uh, you know, you're in probation for a while and all this other stuff. No, no, that's not the way to do it. Uh fallings and temptations are going to come and you're going to to slip up from time to time. But your turning back to God and your genuine repentance is going to be the mechanism in which you ultimately will have victory over it. Um, because, and especially for something as uh, difficult as pornography, which has uh, claws all over us, not just spiritually, but physically and all kinds of stuff. It's a very difficult issue. All right, thanks for tuning in. Again, I want to remind you about the new book, False Christ, available on Amazon.com and paperback and Kindle as well as the free audiobook that you can get from Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash chris. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.